Well, good morning. Give you a welcome in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ as we have gathered to worship our great God. I want to also welcome those who are following with us online, and we are all worshiping together. A couple of announcements so far, you kind of on bad news and, and good news uh, announcements. The, the, the bad news is that next Sunday is the last Sunday of Arne and Jan Dittmar being with us. So being, be, becoming, and we're going to do our best to embarrass them uh, next, next Sunday. And so uh, be keeping that in mind. The good news is we do have a, uh, a new couple who are going to be our youth uh, interns uh, beginning uh, this month. And I want to introduce them to you. I'm going to ask them to stand up. Angel and Kate Sosa, pull, pull your mask down so they can see you. Um, they're not only uh, new youth turns, they're, they're newly married. They were just married in December, and they're going to be looking for, they want a lot of advice uh, from all you experienced people about um, how to have a long and happy marriage. And uh, so be praying uh, for them. And uh, so let's uh, prepare our hearts now for worship.
of that flute. Oh, that is such a blessing. Uh, for a call to worship, I'm going to read from Colossians uh, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established into faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And we come, our God, abounding in thanksgiving for our Lord Jesus Christ, and that through him we may come and, and give thanks and, and worship our great God, God the Father. And we pray for God the Holy Spirit to be upon us, to anoint us, so that as we lift up our voices in thanksgiving and praise, that you will receive these sacrifices of worship as that which is pleasing to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together, Blessed Assurance. Confession of faith is from the Apostles' Creed. Let us confess our faith together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our Father, we do praise you and give you thanks. It's the, the God who dwells in heaven and the God who dwells here in this very sanctuary, indeed, as your word has told us in our very hearts by your Holy Spirit. How wondrous it is to think that our very bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And may we all the more then honor your name, both with our words that we speak, the thoughts that we think, with the actions of our bodies, to honor you and honor our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for the coming of your kingdom. Pray that we, meanwhile, will be found faithful in the service of your kingdom as citizens now in that kingdom as we live upon this earth. And we pray for your church that works to extend, to build your kingdom here and, and be a faithful witness for our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, our Father, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father, on this weekend, as we think of uh, uh, yet another anniversary of the, the road versus Wade and uh, the, the loss of millions of unborn children. Our Father, we pray for your will to be done and we pray for uh, an end to uh, this uh, taking of innocent lives. Thank you that actually the numbers continue to decline and we, we pray that will continue to work because of the faithful teaching, witnessing, proclamation, uh, the work of those who are on, oftentimes on the front lines for those passing bills, uh, for those who are, are judges. We think particularly, though, uh, our Father, of those working in uh, pro-life clinics to provide an alternative uh, for women. And thank you for the, the local ministries uh, here in, in our area uh, for the, because of their work. Uh, babies have been sa uh, saved physically, but also their mothers have been brought to know Jesus Christ. So it's not merely a matter of, of babies surviving. It's a matter of, of true life coming and, and people thriving. And we just thank you for that work and pray for uh, it to continue. We pray, our Father, that you give to us our daily bread. Indeed, we pray that you would give to us our daily bread, that we might be those who give, uh, be instruments of giving bread to others, be it literally uh, food uh, that we see that uh, go to others through food banks and other means, but also that through us go forth the bread of life with the gospel, with uh, teaching of your word, so that others are nourished and built up in their faith, 
whether they be our own brothers and sisters in this church or outside the church. Uh, may we be there, those who care for our neighbor. We pray that you would forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Father, it's even at times just shameful to even have to, to think that we might have debtors when we, because we, we think some people have offended us. And we compare that to the true debts, uh, the, the sins, the trespasses against your laws that we have committed. And how all of that has been forgiven through that one time a work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, through that work of your Holy Spirit, that one-time work of your Holy Spirit, of awakening in us to new life, giving us faith so that we are immediately uh, justified. But we pray for that work of sanctification by your Spirit, so that more and more that we would put to death uh, uh, sin in our life, more and more display what it is uh, to live for your glory and to live righteous lives. We pray that we not be led into temptation. You know how easy it is for us to walk into temptation, to be easily uh, led to, to give into our lust of the flesh. But we pray that you would deliver us from evil, deliver us from the evil one, from the temptations of this world. We make this prayer acknowledging that to you belongs the kingdom. It is the kingdom of God. To you belongs all the power. To you is to be all of the glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
Well, I invite you to turn with me. We're in the last chapter of Hebrews, chapter 13. We're looking at verses 7 through 19. Uh, you could also use the insert uh, that's in your bulletin. It has the text as well. Well, this has been an educational week for me. I've taken some time. I've gone to YouTube, that source of, um, of all kinds of information, and I've, uh, I've watched prophets prophesying, interpreters interpreting dreams. I've learned about biblical dieting, biblical exercising, I mean, I just didn't know there was so much wondrous information that I have never learned. I never learned any of this in seminary. Now, our author would be skeptical, and we're going to see what he has to say about this. Let's turn now to our passage. We're beginning with verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, I could have uh, really taken this verse last Sunday and kind of used it as a conclusion for those verses. Remember, they were giving five different instructions about what to do, how to behave. And this could be kind of like a conclusion in which he says, and I've told you what to do. Look back to your leaders. These are probably leaders who probably started the church, maybe led these people to, uh, to, to salvation, and help them to get uh, established. It would have been particularly fitting with verses 5 and 6. Those were the verses that spoke of God's faithfulness, how he would never leave, never forsake. And he could say, see how the Lord was faithful to your leaders and the difference it made in their lives. Now let's go into verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And this is a very inspirational verse that we all know And in this context, it's probably serving, it's kind of like a transitional verse. It can apply to what he just said and to what he's just about to say. So as to before, he's saying something to the effect, the Jesus of your leaders in the past, he's the same Jesus then, he is today, as he always will be. Okay. And then maybe even using that terminology of verse 5 again about never leaving nor forsaking. could be saying, this Jesus, who never left your leaders, he remains with you today. He will always be with you. Now then, he could also be thinking about what's about to follow. And he's going to be warning them not to follow new teachings that are different from the gospel. So he could be kind of saying, look, your Savior Jesus Christ whose superiority that I have been expounding all through the letter. He does not change. And so the means of salvation does not change. The the means of retaining favor with God does not change, nor will they ever change because they rest in him, in the person of Jesus Christ, who as God never changes. All right, let's go on now to verse 9. that gives specific instruction. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, the Apostle Paul had raised the same concern in his letter to the Colossians. 
chapter 2, verse 16. He says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. He had written something like this in Romans and Corinthians, but it's a different issue. In those other letters, the, the issue was about whether it was appropriate to eat foods that had some kind of connection with pagan worship. But here, apparently there's some kind of teaching that certain diets aided spiritual growth or improved one's favor with God. And our author makes three objections to this kind of teaching. First of all, he just says, this is weird. It's strange, okay? You never heard this kind of stuff from your your former leaders or from the apostles or any other church leaders. And you not even have heard this from your own Jewish traditions as well. Secondly, they don't work. They're not beneficial. And again, Paul had noted the same thing in Colossians 2, verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They just don't work. And then, and this is the heart of the matter, such practices lead the heart away from the gospel of grace. It is grace. It is growing in knowledge of grace, not diet, not works, not rules, not rituals that strengthens the heart. Now, our next passage is yet in another occasion. We've kind of run into this two or three times with our author in which he just seems to kind of just go off on a tangent. And it's kind of like he's saying now, speaking of eating... This makes me think about something else. And he's for the last time, he's going to take them back to the Old Testament and, and learn from that. So look with me in verses 10 through 14. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting sitting, but we seek the city that is to come. And what's going to be helpful to us is, is to revisit the probable context of the letter. Okay. Our author's readers are most likely... Jewish believers okay, who likely have been cut off from their community, their Jewish community. They have been told something like this, that because they now are following this Jesus, they are cut off from God's covenant, his covenant people. They're cut off from the benefits of his sacrificial system. And so our author is saying, look, don't mind that because you knew you're still Jewish believers. You new believers have an altar. You also have an altar. That is, you have a sacrifice. And that sacrifice excludes those who place their faith in the old system. And so just as he's done before, he's, he's taken them back to the Jewish scriptures. He's going to explain this. 
What he's alluding to here is the Day of Atonement, which we've talked about before. After most sacrifices were made, you know, pre day, these daily practices, the priests who served the tabernacle, that's the tent, okay, they could eat what remained of the sacrifice. They could eat of the carcass. They could not, however, on the Day of Atonement, eat any of those sacrifices made. Okay. And so here's what he's saying. Look, those who still adhere to that old sacrificial system, where they're like those priests on that Day of Atonement, who could not partake of the actual sacrifice, well, just like those priests, the Jewish believers today, those who do not believe in Christ today, hold on to that old Jewish religion, they cannot partake of the great sacrifice that the sacrifices of the Day of Atonement were, were pointing to, were foreshadowing. They cannot partake of Jesus Christ. And so are you told, as new Jewish Believers now in Christ that you cannot benefit from the, the sacrifices in the temple? You've been cut off? Well, fine. Because those who refuse to believe in Jesus, well, they cannot benefit in his all-sufficient sacrifice. So now, he, now what he's done now, he's moved his readers to this image of the Day of Atonement. Now he thinks of further application. He's thinking something like this. Do you, are you feeling the reproach of your community? Do you feel like outcasts? Well, think of your Savior. See, that sacrifice in the Day of Atonement, after it was done, that, that body was sent outside the camp. This is a reference he's making to. Where was Jesus crucified? Outside the camp, outside of Jerusalem. He, too, bore the reproach of an outsider. So do not be ashamed to bear the same reproach as your Savior. And then look, remember our citizenship where in the heavenly city. He's talked about this a couple of other times. That's what kept the old saints going. He's saying, what does it matter? What does it matter if you're cast out of an earthly community when what you have is citizenship in the heavenly city of God. And then, now he's kind of going, speaking of sacrifice, by the way, there are two sacrifices that you can make, and they're much better than taking animals and putting them on an altar. Look at the first one in verse 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So better than continually offering up these sacrifices on some altar, better than that is the one continual sacrifice of praise to God. Now, he's actually just giving good Jewish teaching here. So, for example, in Psalm 50, verses 12 through 14, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. 
Now, what was expected of worshipers when they'd go to the temple, they're making these sacrifices, that it, what would accompany this would be thanksgiving. What our author is noting here is that true believers offer their praise through Jesus, who is the one time, the all-sufficient sacrifice. And those who acknowledge his name are the ones whose thanksgiving is being received. We know God through Jesus. We worship God with thanksgiving through Jesus. And when we come to him, we come to God through Jesus. You might even note at times when I give the, um, was a call to worship and I have that prayer, you're going to hear me mentioning uh, coming to God, giving thanks through Jesus Christ and then for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So the sacrifice of Jesus is what makes our sacrifice of praise effectual, pleasing to God. Now, there's another sacrifice that pleases God in verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Again, he's just following Orthodox Jewish teaching here, which is this. One cannot offer worship. You cannot go to the temple of God, offer worship, while at the same time oppressing your neighbors or failing to do good to stand up for your neighbors. You cannot profess to love God while being indifferent to your neighbors, and especially being indifferent to members of God's family. And so offering praise to God is pleasing, but so is doing good and sharing. And neither are to be set off against one another. And so one can choose, well, which one you really like to do best and and focus on, okay? Praise is to be accompanied with and expressed through service. Otherwise, that worship is dishonoring. It's offensive to God. And to do service without a spirit of thanksgiving and praise was just meaningless to God. Now let's keep going here. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Let me just stop right there so elders can just kind of enjoy this for a moment because they're not going to enjoy what's, what is about to be said. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now the leaders are the elders of the church. Okay. Now you've made a vow on this. You might remember it was the last question of your five uh, membership questions. It went like this. Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church? You were saying that you submit yourself to the elders. And you promise to study its purity and peace. Now this verse gives insight into what is the defining responsibility of the elders. Uh, It is not running the business of the church. It is watching over your souls. This term about keeping watch, it's the same term used for watchmen who stand on the the walls of the city, keeping watch. Make sure nothing evil 
uh, no one attacks uh, the, the, the city. Paul uses this term in his farewell address to the elders at Ephesus. And he exhorts them, be alert, keep watch, so as to present false teachers from coming into the flock and leading them astray. Peter, when he exhorted the elders in his first epistle, he called on them to shepherd God's flock, exercising oversight. Again, what matters for elders is not how well they, good job they did of balancing the budget or doing a super job of leading some committees. It's how well they care for the spiritual welfare of their flock. Now, further note that they are those who will have to give an account. It's giving an account to God. And specifically, as Peter entitles him, uh, to the chief shepherd under whom they serve. So their flock is not the, the flock that they own, but it is they, the particular flock belonging to God whom he entrusts them with for their care. You can understand then that, that sense, that weight of responsibility that they feel. Now, how then can members of the flock help them? Well, according to our authors, don't be cantankerous. Don't be complaining. Don't keep bucking against decisions that, you know, have not, they don't harm your soul. Now, if after praying to God about a matter, you believe uh, you got some idea that would be helpful to the elders and beneficial to the church, well, you can take it to them, but you do it in a respectful manner. And when there is something, maybe there's a matter that affects affects what you believe, uh, or it affects how you practice your faith, and even then, first of all, give full consideration to their teaching. Don't just brush it aside, particularly because you went to YouTube or you're listening on the radio to someone else say something different. If you still feel about this, after praying to God, you voice your concern. By the way, there's just a very simple prayer that will save you, keep you from a lot of sin, whether it's going to the elders or just anybody. Whenever you're ready, boy, you want to say something, do something, you just pray to God first. God, will this honor you? Am I honoring you? Or is I'm just getting something off my chest? Now, our, our author notes here, look, it simply is no advantage making being an elder a burden, okay? Disrespect, constant complaining, all that does is just hampers their, their responsibility to be alert, to watch over their people. No one benefits. All right, let's move on to the last two verses, 18 and 19. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. And what our author requests for himself, again, it applies to all church leaders, and especially to those who have a public ministry. So again, I'm going to go to the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Colossians. He asks the same thing for prayer, and he specifies 
what to be praying for. This, uh, this is in chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word, okay? to declare the mystery of Christ, to declare the gospel, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Okay? Pray. Pray for me. Pray for others. Pray for those you hear on the radio and so on. That they are able to speak the gospel in a clear manner. And then, he, and then Paul adds something else to Colossians about them, but it would also apply to himself and other leaders. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That verse, you need to print it out and tape it over your computer every, so that you will see it every time you're about to post something on Facebook, make a comment or whatever, okay? Let your speech always be gracious, it's easy to slip up for public, particularly for public leaders, okay? It's easy to slip up in presenting the gospel and misrepresenting Jesus when you got enemies coming after you and criticizing you all the time. So pray for them. Those, again, who serve the Lord in public ministry need our prayers. And trying to apply these, uh, all this, these different instructions, there are two concerns that I think the, the author had, kind of overriding concerns I want to bring up. One was the problem that his readers were having of following false teachers. Okay. Boy, if his readers had problems with that, what about us? We got books, we got TV, we got radio, we've got websites, YouTube, Facebook, we got people sending us emails with all kinds of things, and endless streams of information with all manner of teachings, all claiming to be the true teaching from God. Now again, some of our author's readers, they were learning about some new teachings about diet. You know, thinking, well, you, the Bible says there are certain foods that will improve their spiritual growth. So I googled, I went on there and typed in Bible diet, and lo and behold, all kinds of teachings about certain foods. And if I would eat this certain diet and eat these foods and avoid these other foods because the Bible only has these foods or whatever, then I'm going to experience blessing and, and grow and spiritually and so on. Same thing with exercise. I found all kinds of stories, just typing in angels, all kinds of stories of people meeting angels and countless stories of receiving special revelation, special prophecy, and so many of them always typically tend to lead to the end times, and particularly now that we have a democratic president, the anti-crisis is, is here. Okay. Now, how do you discern what is biblical? Well, our author has given the key. He says, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by what? By grace, not by foods. 
not by all these other types of things that have not benefited those devoted to them. And so we're to beware of teachings that promise to reveal, whether they've discovered it in Scripture, whether they've received special revelation, that they've revealed practices that if you will just do these things, now you're going to move closer to God, now you become more spiritual, maybe you're going to reach a higher level spiritually. Finally, you're going to overcome some sins. These teachings can be classified as the gospel and. And they go like this. Yes, believing in Jesus gets us saved. That's great. Now, to really be victorious, to, to really get close to God, do this. Okay? This is the gospel and teaching. Now, our author teaches, look, it's one thing. It is grace that strengthens the heart. It is growing in our understanding of the gospel of grace. That is what moves us closer to God. That is what's going to sanctify us. Now, are there, are there practices that can help you in your spiritual life? Well, sure. But there are not essential biblical practices being communicated in scripture that you now add on to the gospel and that you have to observe these things if you're going to get right with God, if you're going to move up to that next spiritual level. Now, look, having a healthy body, that's a good thing to have. It can help you concentrate better, help you, uh, if you want to serve God, you can serve him more ably. But there's no biblical prescription for your diet or for your exercise that you must follow because that's what Genesis taught or that is what Leviticus or whatever teaches. Now most of these gospel and teachings, they spring from a theology that's called prosperity gospel. Their key verse is a verse in which you know, the Apostle John is just giving a greeting. He's just saying, I hope you do, I hope you do fine. I hope you, you're feeling well. It's, it's 3 John, verse 2. And typically, it's, it's read in the King James or New King James. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prosper it. And so they left that out, which is just a greeting, and say, wow. See, the gospel includes prospering financially and prospering physically. And a true believer should just name it and claim it. They should claim that financial prosperity, claim that good health. Okay. This is a false gospel. Anytime you hear a teacher quote this verse, Already you know that they adhere to an unorthodox and a harmful, a very harmful teaching. Now, a common characteristic that I just kind of alluded to right here among these teachers is what's called text-proofing. That's where you, you pull out a verse, take it in out, out of isolation, put it in isolation, out of its context, and then magnify what is uh, falsely what it is saying. 
So one of the videos I watched of a couple who, hey, we're just going to let the Bible talk for itself, and here are the five Bible verses that tell you about diet and exercise. And I wrote them down, and every single verse is taken out of context. You know? It's teaching what the author, sometimes not only, it's not even what, well, the author's not teaching that, it's the opposite of what he's teaching. And one might ask, look, okay, we've got all this stuff coming in, how do we be alert to every false teacher and teaching? How do we keep from going astray? Well, again, our author has presented that in our passage. Remember the first exhortation. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Remember them. Remember what they taught you. Uh, They're the ones who taught you the gospel in the first place. So now you've got these new teachers coming in, who are coming up with these strange teachings that were not taught by your leaders. Go back to them. Now, our own church is what's called a confessional church. So I'm not just talking about our local church, but we're part of the Presbyterian church in America, just being a Presbyterian church. And what that term means, a confessional church, is, well, we've already illustrated it. What did we recite earlier? The Apostles' Creed. Some Sundays we recite the Nicene Creed. Some Sundays we'll pull out sections of the Westminster Confession. We're taking these confessions, these creeds, that came from the past upon which uh, our church, our way of life and understanding of scriptures are built upon. And what they do is they keep us grounded in the essentials of the gospel. Uh, they keep us grounded in what we might call, we call in our own terminology, a pastor, I have to promise to be able to proclaim the full counsel of God. And so again, these creeds, these counsels, they keep us from going just, just kind of just bouncing around from every new teaching. I have to look at them in light of the teachings that have been established for, for centuries. Now, it's the duty, this is the duty of the present church elders, the leaders, to know these doctrines. That's why, at least in our particular church, if you can become an elder or even a deacon, we can make the deacons do this, study the Westminster Confession for several months so that our elders in particular can help us keep from being led astray. So let's say you have questions. You've been listening to the, you know, your, your podcast, radio, or whatever, those outside the church, and they've said something seems a little bit odd or whatever. You can go to your elders for help and discernment. You can go, but you need to go to them understanding this. They're not just another opinion. Hey, just, you're just another guy or whatever to give an idea. These are shepherds ordained by God, hands laid upon them as shepherds to whom we are to submit or at least whose opinion are be held in high regard. They're not just an another opinion. And so 
you would do well, again, avail yourself of the elders, but also to avail yourself of teachings from your church's tradition. And there are many excellent teachers and teachings and ministries out there that are available uh, that come from our tradition. And sometime this afternoon, I don't know when Megan has it scheduled, but you will get a list of resources that I just developed as I was working on them. It's not exhaustive, but they're safe to go to, and you know that what they're going to teach is going to come from our tradition. So there was this concern for our author of false teachers coming in, leading people astray. There's a second concern related to you know, that part about reproach, because his people had, had left uh, their, their old Jewish belief system. And, it, and it's this. It's a tendency to go back to trusting in, in morals, in the law. In their case of moving from the Mosaic law, going, uh, wanting to go back to that sacrificial system, we can feel that same way. Indeed, it's a natural tendency for us to feel the reproach of fundamentalist teaching. And here's what I mean by fundamentalist teaching is that which pressures us to trust in law-keeping to be right with God. Okay. That kind of preaching, you go out typically feeling pretty bad because the law has been laid upon you. And I remember a church up in New Jersey, famous church at one time, and it has a huge sign on the front of that church as you ride by. It is a sign of the Ten Commandments. Okay. It's the gospel, the gospel that a church is to be proclaiming. Ten Commandments are good. They tell us what is right for God. But it is the gospel that points us and that we're to put our trust in. We harm ourselves when we keep going back to trusting in the Ten Commandments rather than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we harm ourselves in two ways. Either we, we tend to stay fearful. God really can't be pleased with me because when we're honest, we don't live up to the Ten Commandments. Or even worse, we delude ourselves and become self-righteous, thinking we're doing a pretty good job of it. And likewise, we harm our neighbors because what we're teaching our neighbors is that it's all about morals, good works, rather than the grace of God that brings them into a right relationship with God. So always, always look to Jesus and look to his sacrifice for your, stand, your right standing before God. If you do so, it's then that you will give to God the sacrifices that are pleasing to him. That joyous thanksgiving, that joyous sacrificial service. We worship and we serve God not to earn, not to keep his favor, but in thanksgiving that we've already received his favor through that all-sufficient work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So stay grounded in the gospel, the gospel of grace that proclaims the work of Jesus Christ. And it is then 
It's then that you will keep in good teaching and that you will offer pleasing sacrifices. We give you thanks, our God, for the one-time, all-sufficient work of our Lord Jesus Christ, of his sacrifice uh, upon the cross. Thank you for this gospel of grace. May we keep turning to this grace to strengthen our hearts that we may offer to you in turn the sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of works that are pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together, Lamb of God. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.